Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody. Today is Friday, October 30th, day before Halloween, day before we turn our clocks back one hour, but merely days away from the big election of 2020. We've got an all hands on deck special podcast today with all our reporters and our analysts looking at the major gubernatorial races in their respective regions and ballot initiatives that will appear on Tuesday's election. All right, let's welcome back to the show, Ava Lorenz in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Ava, how are you? Fine, how are you? All right, Glad thank you very much. Um, always a pleasure. So let's get right to it. You cover exclusively um, the island of Puerto Rico. And I know it's, it's like certain states, certain states in the US, it's a busy time. So let's talk about the two candidates for governor who are going to replace Wanda Vasquez. Yes, well, we have actually six candidates running for this election, but uh, of these candidates, only two have the most possibility of being elected. Uh, let me just give you a quick mention of the candidates. Our first one is Pedro Pierluisi. He's a member of the New Progressive Party, which is the same candidate as the governor. As party. Uh, uh, this is the party that advocates statehood for Puerto Rico. Pierre Luisi was a former resident commissioner. He's a former justice secretary. He works for a law firm, or he works, I should say, for a law firm that provides legal services to the financial oversight and a management board, which is handling Puerto Rico's fiscal affairs. And he's a Democrat. He briefly was co-president of Barack Obama's campaign during the 2008 elections. And he was briefly governor after the resignation of Ricardo Rosselló. But of course, his oath was nullified following a petition to the U.S. to the um, Puerto Rico Supreme Court from Senate President Tomas Rivera Chatz. We also have Carlos Delgado Artieri. He's a member of the Popular Democratic Party, the party that advocates for the continuation of the island's current status as a commonwealth with a non-voting representative in Washington. He's a mayor of the city of Isabela, and uh, he has served as mayor of Isabela since 2001. We also have Juan Dalmau Ramirez of the Puerto Rican Independence Party. This is the party that wants Puerto Rico to be a separate country from the United States. And, and he is uh, one of the uh, Puerto Rican Independence Party's main leaders. He was named Secretary General of the party in 2002. And in the year 2000, he was arrested for civil disobedience against the U.S. military practices uh, in the small island of Vieques. Uh, we also have Alexandra Lugaro, who is running for the Citizens' Victory Movement. Uh, she previously ran as an independent candidate in the previous election. Uh, her party was created last year, and it's a party that is neutral in the terms of status and just wants to you know, improve the general management of the government and restore credibility in government institutions. We also have Cesar Vasquez, who is running for Project Dignity. This is a conservative Christian party uh, that grew out of the frustration created by the island's $72 billion debt 
and by uh, the uh, cases of corruption that we have had. We also have uh, Eliezer Molina. He is an independent candidate. He is running for the awareness movement. This movement is a pro-business movement, and what they want to do is increase the island's sustainability and the growth in national products, as, as, as well as support uh, local farm production. Those are basically, uh, so those are basically the candidates. And I just would like to mention that there is a writing movement that seeks to promote uh, the current governor as the candidate as part of a writing movement, uh, but that has really has no chance of succeeding. And that's it. Okay, so those are the candidates. Yes. Now, let me ask you another question. Will voters have another vote during the election? Oh, yes, they will. In fact, in this election, we are also, when Puerto Ricans go to the polls, they will be voting for a yes-no statehood referendum. And of course, except for the Puerto Rican Independence Party and the Popular Democratic, the remaining political candidates are pro-statehood. Uh, however, this referendum, I just have to say, does not have the support of the U.S. Justice Department, which in fact has said that the wording in the ballot for this referendum has been written to influence voters into voting for the yes statehood option. Critics of this referendum has said it is a gimmick from the governing MPP to bring voters to the polls. Many MPP voters uh, are expected to abstain from voting as they hear the solution by the events that took place under former MPP Governor Ricardo Rosselló, who was forced to resign uh, in last summer. So, uh, and last summer, uh, I mean, I should say summer of 2019. All right, Ava, I got one last question for you. What are the most important issues in the election? Do you, is there like uh, main topics that the candidates are looking at? Well, yes, I would have to say that these are economic development, particularly getting Puerto Rico to exit bankruptcy, something that because of a recent decision from uh, U.S. District Court Judge Laura Taylor Swain might be happening next year, as she told the government that he has to submit a debt deal by February. Uh, and of course, the other subject is corruption. Those are the main topics. Um, like the many uh, U.S. states, Puerto Rico has been in a recession since 2006. And just when it was seeing some growth, the island got hit by the pandemic. And right now we have a two-digit uh, unemployment rate. Uh, as, as I mentioned, since 2017, Puerto Rico has been in bankruptcy and has been unable to go to the markets. So while the, right now Puerto Rico has received millions uh, and, and I would say billions in financial assistance to help it recover from the damages caused by the hurricane season in 2017. Uh, these funds have been slow to reach those in need. And in the um, subject of corruption, we have had several incidents of corruption over the past few years. Lately, one of these issues of corruption has been the huge amount in salaries that the legislature headed by the New Progressive Party, has been giving to their political friends the huge amount in salaries. And that has been an issue this past week. So those are the biggest issues in this campaign. I see. Very interesting. Well, 
like everything else that's going on, we will definitely keep tabs. I know you will let us know after Tuesday's election. But Ava, thanks for yes. your time today. Stay safe down there. and We'll talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Let's move on to Chuck Stanley. Chuck Stanley, Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. All right. Always a pleasure. So New York is one of the states that you cover in. They've got a lot of going on. I don't want to give out, give away too much, but tell me what's going on specifically in uh, New York election. I know Cuomo is not up for re-election, but all the stuff is going on. So just give us a rundown of what's going on in New York State. Right. I mean, obviously, New York State was hit very hard by uh, the coronavirus, and there are tremendous impacts uh, to deal with that, both on a healthcare uh, level and and for their economy. So New Yorkers on Tuesday, well, right now and through Tuesday, are casting their votes for the state legislature at a time when Democrats are just two Senate seats shy of a supermajority. So if that happens, it could mean a leftward shift at the Capitol at a time when the state faces, as I said, some really important questions regarding the continuing response to the havoc that the COVID-19 pandemic has wrought on the state's balance sheet. Republicans in Albany, of course, would be further relegated to the backbench but a more progressive legislature could also look to push Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo to the left on areas where he's been more moderate. For example, Democratic leaders in both houses of the legislature have advocated for a tax increase on the rich to help bridge the state's $30 billion budget gap, which is driven largely due to lost tax receipts from the pandemic. That could provide some badly needed revenue for the state, but as Governor Cuomo has argued, it would further narrow the state's tax base, leaving it even more reliant on a small number of wealthy taxpayers for revenue. Another issue that could be impacted by the elections is marijuana legalization and taxation. This is something that came really close to passing in 2019 and wound up being the victim of time constraints on the budgeting process as much as opposition in the legislature, which came largely from moderate and Republican leading suburban districts. A stronger Democratic majority combined with the state's desperate need for revenue could both help to push the issue forward in 2021. And the last but potentially most important issue that the legislature is going to be uh, facing in the coming year is health care. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, the state was struggling with dramatically increasing Medicaid costs, and the current health crisis is certainly not going to help with that. Governor Cuomo has sought to shift more of the burden for those Medicaid costs onto local governments, Meanwhile, progressives in the state have been pushing for single-payer health care. So those two related arguments could even further be complicated by the state's financial troubles, as well as the results of the pres presidential and congressional contests, which, of course, would have major impl implications for federal health care policy. All right. So that takes care of New York State. And since uh, you're also in D.C., as of now, and you can confirm for me, Chuck, there's there's no big change in terms of the overall stimulus package. Am I right, Chuck? No, I mean, it's hard to remember a time when we weren't waiting for news on a coronavirus aid package. At this point, the one thing that's clear is we're not going to see anything pass before Election Day. Um, where things stand right now um, are where they've been for a little while. Republicans are focused on liability protections for employers, but Democrats worry that could leave workers exposed to unsafe conditions with little recourse. Meanwhile, Democrats want a major aid package for state and local governments, but Republicans say the cost of Democrats' proposals are too high, and they worry that the money could be used to bail out what they see as profligate spending by Democratic state houses. So it's possible that with the election behind us, some of the invective could be taken out of the debate on some of these issues. 
But both sides, I think, would have really liked to get a deal done in order to show that they can deliver a policy response to the crisis before voters go to the polls. With the election behind us, some of that incentive is going to be gone. I think the next best chance to get some relief done may be through a federal spending package that has to be passed in order to avoid a government shutdown in December. Yes, Chuck, very interesting and very complicated times. Um, we will definitely follow up with a post-mortem after election day. Anything can happen with White House going one way, Congress going one way, or everything going into a same party type along the same party line. So, but Chuck, thank you for your time and for your work, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, bye. All right, let's move on to the Midwest and welcome back to the show, Kaylin David. Hi, how are you? Happy to be here. All right, glad to have you. Now, I just realized there's no major gubernatorial or mayoral elections in your in your area, right? Right. Well, Indiana, Missouri, but they both, you know, that they're not really that contested. Those are the two gubernatorial, and they're not really that contested. So, no, there's not really any hot races. I have to say that I know of. In All right, area. but I know there's some things going on in the ballot that involve tax and things going on in in the motor city so tell us what's what do you do what you did find out in terms of uh, ballot measures well the big thing that we're watching and that i know a lot of muni land is watching is the illinois constitutional amendment for the income tax so this is a deal that will ask voters whether or not they want to amend the constitution the state constitution which now requires a flat income tax mm -hmm. um, whether they want to amend it to a graduated one they don't have the numbers in there but the general assembly's already passed a law that would if approved increase that would that has the numbers so basically right now without getting too boring in the weeds we pay in Illinois 4.95 flat income tax everybody and if the voters approve to amend it then the tax rate would mostly t stay the same for most people. It would drop to 4.75 for some people. I think it's like 10,000 or below. It would be 4.9 under 100,000. And then up to 250,000, it would be 4.95. So that's what we're at now. But the big thing is, of course, it would raise it pretty steeply for income above, you know, kind of a graduated level. So the steepest level would be 7.99. That's single filers over mm -hmm. 750,000 and joint filers over a million. So the state says this will bring in 1.2 billion extra this second half of this fiscal year and about 3.2 billion generally annually. And they say, you know, it's incredibly important. This is one of the most well-financed, I think, questions in the country. I think there's been like 110 or $120 million spent on it. It's real controversial and polarizing. The governor himself, it's one of, it's his sort of signature issue. Mm -hmm. He has spent like $56 million on it out of his own money. You know, that's like 50 bucks to us, but still. Um, <laughs> so it's really well financed and it's really, like I said, tons of ads, very um, controversial. And for investors, it's important because, you know, like City has said in a report recently, straight up, that if the if it fails, this state's going to see a downgrade. As most people know, Illinois is lowest rated investment grade, right. so with negative by all three. So if it gets downgraded, it will go. It will become the first junk in this in the nation. So, right. um, so it's the stakes are really high. Um, 
you know, they haven't said whether or not there's there's other issues. You know, another issue is just sort of that I would say in general for the outcome, I mean, uh, in general for Illinois and Chicago, the outcome of the election, who wins presidential and Senate is really important because, um, again, the stakes are high and assuming that a Democratic victory in one or both of those, the Senate or the president would mean a more generous federal aid package. That's really important to Illinois and Chicago, which are kind of suffering. So that's another thing that if that doesn't happen, maybe we see a possible downgrade scenario, at least if combined with a couple other things, such as the failure of the of the graduated income tax measure. So that's it's a big deal. The stakes are kind of high in Illinois. And like I said, it's there's a lot of money been spent on it. A lot of people pining on it. A lot of ads, kind of hard to say where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's going to be the big vote. And they say that you know, in some ways, this the credit, the the state's credit, kind of hinges on it to a certain extent. And Caitlin, I think I, as I mentioned, you were going to talk about what's going on in Detroit too. Sure. So Detroit, it's it's not a huge deal, but it's interesting. The voters are going to weigh in on a two hundred and fifty million dollar bond authorization. It's for blight remediation, blight removal, which has been one of the mayor's big priorities there. And it's interesting a little bit to us, especially because if it's approved, the city has said it will come to market with 175 million of that. It'll be um, geos, and they're going to do that soon. They do that, but before you know, this winter, before the end of the year, early 21, they were just in the market recently. So that's something else that I'm interested in that we're watching. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you for your time today. Stay safe out there. We'll talk to you again uh, after election day. Okay, thank you. You too. All right, let's uh, welcome back to the show, Kathy O'Donnell. Kathy, how are you? I'm doing well, Young. How are you? Good, thanks. So I've been asking all the reporters about the latest in gubernatorial or ballot measures. And I know with you, you're following some of the ballot initiatives, including one in my home state of New Jersey, regarding recreational marijuana use. So what's going on there? I understand it's, uh, it's, it's probably expected to pass, correct? Yes, Young. As you probably recall from editing stories, um, New Jersey tried to get it done legislatively, but last November, Senate President Steve Sweeney, along with Senator Nicholas Scutari, announced that the votes just weren't there to pass it. So instead, they introduced legislation, which ultimately passed, uh, to put the question on the ballot this November. And public question number one asked New Jersey voters whether they would support a constitutional amendment to legalize the possession and use of marijuana for people 21 and older and legalize the cultivation, processing, and sale of retail marijuana. And according to Normal, which advocates for the repeal of prohibition on marijuana, a solid majority of New Jersey voters support question one. And there were, I believe, three statewide polls released in October that showed support among voters at over 60%. So it's looking fairly uh, fairly good to pass. Hmm. So I know in New Jersey, which is scheduled to sell about four and a half billion of emergency bonds next month to help it deal with the coronavirus pandemic, they could certainly use every penny in revenue can get its hands on. How much revenue might this bring in if it passes? Well, nowhere near four and a half billion, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, but according to a fiscal estimate by the Office of Legislative Services that was done back in November, excuse me, back in December of last year, 
Based on the experience of Colorado, New Jersey could generate revenues of up to about $126 million annually from sales and use tax once the market becomes established. Um, but the OLS estimate, however, did note that sales are likely to be lower in the early years and that there could be some issues also with market saturation and legalization by uh, neighboring states that could hurt revenue collections. And as folks have noted, if this passes, New Jersey would be the first mid-Atlantic state with legalized uh, recreational marijuana for adults. So, you know, I can't imagine that Pennsylvania and those folks would be too far behind. Mm, I see. All right, Kath, I got one last question. For let's, let's move on over to the West Coast. And you've been watching a ballot question in the state of California. I think it's called Proposition 15. Tell us more about that. Sure. Um, Adam Stern, who is a co-head of research at Breckenridge Capital Advisors, he put out an interesting report on muni credit and the November elections. And in it, he said he believes passage of Proposition 15 is likely to be a credit positive for many local general obligation bond issuers. Um, and what it would require is reassessment of high-end commercial properties every three years instead of when they are sold as it is now. And that increased revenue would be redistributed to school districts and local governments. And while Stern noted that a risk exists that higher taxes could speed the outflow of California residents and businesses to other states, he said that's likely more of a long-term issue. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep tabs on that. And uh, I know we'll, I'm sure uh, we'll talk to you again after, after Election Day once uh, everything um, settles down and the votes are counted. So. All right, Kathy, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we'll catch up with you again after Election Day once all the votes are counted. Uh, thanks for your time again, and stay safe out there. You too. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, let's move on to Greg Clark with his wisdom. Greg Clark, who is the head of municipal research here at DebtWire. Greg, welcome back to the show. How are you today? All right, I'm good, thanks. So, Greg, I've asked reporters for their take in their respective regions, but I want you to give me your perspective on, in general, the state and local elections. Okay, uh, let me talk about the, the governors first. There's currently 26 Republican and 24 Democratic governors, and on Election Day, there will be 11 uh, gubernatorial elections. And here's a little calculation I did yesterday as I was preparing, because it, it struck me that there's so many uh, big states with Democratic governors, I wanted to see what the, what the composition was. Anyway, based on 2019 census estimates, 54% of the population lives in states with Democratic governors and 46% with Republican governors. Interesting. I thought it would be a bit more skewed toward the Democrats with large states like California, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, all with Democratic governors, but I guess Texas and Florida compensate to a large extent for this, because those are the, I think, the second and third largest states now. Um, in any event, Real Clear Politics says 24 Republican governors are not up for re-election or are in safe seats. And 21 Democratic governors fit into these categories. They were, they're either not up or they're in safe seats. So that leaves five that are in doubt to some extent. There's, they say that Real Clear Politics has three are likely Orleans GOP, one is likely Orleans Democrat, and one, Montana, is a toss-up. I think that's an open governor's seat. In other words, there's no incumbent there. 
So if these numbers hold up, you'll have 27 Republican governors, 22 Democratic governors, and one that's as of now too close to call. Wow. Pretty, pretty similar numbers. Very interesting. So what about the control of the state legislators? Well, there's currently 36 trifectas, which I thought was a big number uh, out of 50. 15 Democratic trifectas and 21 Republican trifectas. The other 14 states are under divided government, so to speak. So, Greg, clarify when you when you say trifecta. What do you mean by that? A trifecta is a state in which one party controls the governorship and both chambers of the state legislature. Ah, well, all right. But Nebraska has a unicameral legislature. Am I right? I mean, what do they call it there? Can't they? Can, that can't be a trifecta. That's a good question. I don't know what they call it there. I guess it would be either an exacta or quinella. Sounds like a um, like like off track betting or racing. We're we're at the, <laughs> we're at the races. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Democrats come into the twenty twenty elections with with gains in uh, chambers and in trifectas in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, and of course whether this continues this year is anyone's guess. So let's step back for a second and look at it from a national perspective. Why are state legislatures so important? The U.S. Constitution expressly provides to state legislatures the power to redraw not only state legislative districts, but also uh, House of Representatives districts. This happens every 10 years after the new census results come in. So the legislatures have a lot to say about the eventual composition of the U.S. Congress. And if a given party has control of both legislatures, then uh, we're going to skew the congressional apportionments and seats to to, uh, to favor their own party. And uh, regardless of which party it is, it's it's either a fortunate or unfortunate fact of life, I guess. Yes, and but also it's also a reminder to always vote and always fill out the census form because that affects everybody. But. Right. And vote, as I always say, vote early and often, but don't vote if you're going to cancel out my vote. <laughs> All right, Greg. Well, thanks for your time. I know it's a little chilly out there. They're expecting snow your way, I heard, but uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, All right, we Greg? got some. I'm, I'm, watching it. I'm watching it as we speak. All right. Well, let's stay safe out there, Greg, and we'll talk to you again. Okay. Thanks, Young. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Many thanks to everyone involved in today's podcast, which we had all our reporters and our research analysts. Many thanks to Ava Lorenz in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C., Kaylin Devitt in Chicago, Illinois, Kathy O'Donnell in Harrisburg, PA, and Greg Clark in New York, head of musical research. Also, many thanks to Christian Yala, who kept all the recordings together and kept all the sound sounding great. But as always, thanks to you, our listeners out there. Hope you have voted by now or plan to vote. And stay safe out there. And hopefully you'll continue to listen in next week for the latest on distressed muni debt on the muni lowdown produced by DebtWire Municipals. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the muni lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.